So 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, a uh, little bit of uh, just recap and a few thoughts as we begin to dive into this particular chapter. Of course, we know that the Thessalonian church was established by Paul in the second missionary journey. He had a couple key workers with him that were traveling with him, Silas and Timothy, and although Dr. Luke isn't mentioned, uh, he joined in on this journey as well. And uh, they went after establishing a church in Philippi. They were driven out of that city. They went to Thessalonica and uh, preached the gospel there, but they were also driven out of Thessalonica by uh, those who opposed their preaching to the Gentiles. And so they moved on to the city of Berea where they again proclaimed the word of God. And Acts tells us that uh, the Bereans were good learners. They were those who diligently sought the scriptures to see if the things that they taught were taught were true. But what happened in Berea was that those who had caused trouble for Paul in the previous city, Thessalonica, came to Berea as well. And they chased Paul out of Berea. And so Paul went on ahead to Athens. And shortly thereafter, the book of Acts tells us that uh, Timothy and Silas caught up to them. And so here's Paul and Timothy and, and Silas, and they're in Athens, and we get this comment from Paul right here. Okay, in verse 1, he says this. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind in Athens alone. So Paul makes it to Athens, but his problem is this. He doesn't know what the heck is going on back in Thessalonica. What is happening among the church there? And so what we're going to see that he's going to, what, what he did in the book of Acts was that he sent Timothy back uh, to find out what was happening amongst that church, to, to do work amongst those new believers. Okay, and so we're going to get this picture of Timothy and just the ministry and, and what specifically he was doing there in Thessalonica. But the first word of chapter 3 is therefore. And that word just ties the direction of everything that Paul is about to share in chapter 3 back to everything that he has previously just been rapping about and what we've talked about the last uh, couple weeks, the first two chapters of this letter. And so let me remind you, in the first chapter, uh, Paul talked about how the Thessalonian church was born. Okay, he talked about uh, their response to the gospel of Jesus Christ and the fruit that their lives bore. The example that this church became in the known world, in Macedonia and the other provinces. He, he talked about uh, the fruit of their faith. He talked about uh, their influence. He talked about their faith and their love and their hope. And he said, these things are proof that you, the Thessalonian church, have truly been chosen by God, by the way that you've responded to the gospel. And so Paul just talked about how they were born into the kingdom and the fruit that came from that. And then in chapter 2, we saw last week that Paul addressed some of the accusations of those um, who were in Thessalonica and were, you know, accusing him of being a false minister, uh, accusing him of being a charlatan, accusing him of, of being in the ministry to, to make a buck. And so he shared for for us and to the Thessalonian church in this letter in chapter 2, just his heart as a pastor, as an apostle. And he talked about how he nurtured the church, uh, how he cared for the people of God. In fact, if you recall, he compared his ministry to that of a, a mother with a little child, nursing a little one. He also compared his ministry to that of a father with his children in the way that he encouraged and he exhorted them to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. And so, as he nurtured them as a spiritual parent, God brought growth, spiritual growth, depth 
to the lives of the Thessalonians. And so here's what we have so far, okay? Chapter 1, we got the story of their spiritual birth. Chapter 2, we have the account of Paul's nurture and how subsequent growth was happening in the body of Christ. Now, following that pattern, just take the physical pattern of growth and being born into the spiritual realm, and we know that those two things mirror one another. And so the next, the next hurdle for those who are born and those who are born again in Christ and are beginning to grow, the, the next stage is that you have to learn how to stand. And so Paul's going to talk about this process of learning how to stand in Christ. As you know, you, you can't walk until you, you learn how to stand. And next week, when we're in chapter 4, we're going to talk about walking in the Lord. So this morning is uh, standing. Look at, look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 8. He says this, For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. You know, I was thinking about my three kids as I was just thinking about this process of maturing, physical development, learning to stand and to walk. And, um, you know, with each one of our successive kids, successive kids, I, I don't know about in your household, but here's how it worked in our house. Um, the progression of development uh, got slower with each kid. I don't, you know, Jonah was walking two days shy of 10 months. Eli was walking at 11 and a half months. Isabella didn't stand until she was 13 months old, you know. She didn't walk until she was 17 months old. And the doctor was actually concerned about her development. Now, the real problem was this. There was four people in our house uh, who would jump at her beck and call. And had she first learned to snap her fingers, I don't think she had ever, would ever have learned to walk, okay? And so I remember those days when we were concerned about her development. At least the doctor was. I never was. I, I knew what was going on. Well, Paul, when he arrived in Athens, he was beside himself because he did not go, know what was going on with his spiritual kids back in Thessalonica. Okay, he was driven away from them. He was driven away from the church to which he was the pastor and the apostle and the parent and the church planter and all that stuff. He was a father and, and like a mother for them. And he couldn't bear the unknown state of the people of God. But he couldn't go back. He told us that at the end of chapter 2. That though he wanted to, that time and time again Satan hindered him and stopped him from going back to that city. So just, you know, put it in a parental context. What do you do? You cannot be there as a parent. Cut off from the kids. Cut off from the children. It's a brutal thing for a parent. And when Paul could bear it no longer, he couldn't go himself, he did the next, next best thing. Best thing. Best thing. Did the next best thing. He sent Timothy. He sent his son in the faith. He sent his most trusted right hand, man. And... You know, eventually when Timothy went to Thessalonica and then again caught up with Paul in, in Athens, he gave a good report. But what happened was this. Paul's in Athens. Timothy comes down to Athens and joins him to do ministry there. And Paul says, look, pack your bags. I'm sending you to Thessalonica. You're going there right now. And so Paul says he was even willing to be alone, even though, you know, recently he'd been in prison. He'd been beaten with rods. He'd been driven by force from a number of communities. Uh, even with all of those things in mind, and the resistance of Satan against his ministry, his concern for the church weighed on him enough that he was willing to even be by himself in Athens. And so we read in verse 2, he says this. And we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ to establish 
and to exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions for you know that we are destined for this. You know, a little bit about Timothy. Timothy was not just Paul's son in the faith. Timothy was not just a brother in the Lord. He was not just a trusted co-worker, but look at the description that is given to him. Timothy is called God's co-worker in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That word co-worker expresses the idea, we, we translate it to deacon, doulos, servant, which simply means he was a servant. He was a true minister, which means this about Timothy. Timothy was the kind of guy that it was not his heart to be served, but it was his heart to serve the people of God. And he wasn't afraid to work. He was preaching alongside of Paul. He was there. If it was helping out with the side gig, you know, making tents with Paul, he was there. If it was cleaning toilets at the church, he was there. Whatever it was, Timothy was willing to serve the people of God, not just be served. And he knew how to work. And he knew how to minister to God's people. Now he sent back, and this is a young church. Now, you, you know, ministry amongst new Christians isn't easy. It, it's just like, it's just like parenting a, a little baby that has more dependence on, on mom and dad than as they mature and grow older. And it's like that with, with new believers as well. There's, there's this need for dependence upon spiritual parents and a dependence upon spiritual family, especially in those early days of growth and development. You know, I was, I, I was just thinking about as I'm preparing this message, I was thinking, wow, are we prepared as a church? Let's say God moved across the town of Gibsons and, you know, did the amazing work, 50 or 25 or 10 or even five people got saved. Are we prepared to do the work that's involved with the nurturing of young believers? Necessary for their growth. And one of the things that you have to learn in faith is to stand. That's part of growing in maturity. Mature Christians learn to stand. They learn to feed themselves. They learn to have communion with their heavenly father and to walk by faith. And there's a process, as we all know, of growth and discipleship. So Paul's going back, or Timothy's going back to Thessalonica. It's a ministry amongst new believers, and it's going to be messy. But Timothy could handle the assignment that Paul was giving him. And really, as far as we know uh, from the scriptures, this was probably, you know, Timothy, Timothy's first independent assignment for the Lord. And it was this, go and establish and exhort the Thessalonian church in their faith. Uh, to establish and exhort you in your faith. Those words strike me in this text. They, they are worth, they're, they're the key to what's going on here. Uh, I looked him up in the NIV because, you know, since we did the ESV switch, I, I'm still kind of an NIV guy, and I think that way. And um, I noticed something about Paul's writing consistently in the NIV over the years is that he uses two words always together, and they're these two words, strengthen and encourage. He's constantly talking about them. If you go through the book of Acts or uh, through many of his letters, he talks about his work to strengthen and encourage the people of God in their faith. Here in the ESV, it says, to establish and to exhort you in your faith. What does that mean? What was the work that Timothy was given? Well, establish means this. It just means to make you firm, to strengthen, to set fast, to make stable. 
Uh, the word exhort is that word encourage or, or comforter um, or comfort. In fact, it's the same uh, word, the Greek word parakleo, which is the, the title given to the Holy Spirit. He's the comforter, the exhorter. And it means to call someone to your side. It means come beside me and let's go. Come stand beside me. And so it's a significant, you know, word because of its connection to the Holy Spirit. He is our paracleo, our comforter, and he calls us to his side. And so Timothy's assignment is this. Uh, establish, make stable the people of God in Thessalonica. And exhort them, comfort them, encourage them, bring them to your side and disciple them. And so, you know, it all means this. Timothy had to teach the Thessalonians how to stand. How to stand up. I mean, remember when your kids were learning to stand? They didn't come out of the womb and, hey, I'm here. Get up on their feet and walk around the delivery room. Start talking about the weather. It, it's not how it worked. You, you and I know that. You know, they, they, were, they were, that would be crazy. You know, as a parent, you stood them on your lap and you bounced them and you helped develop those muscles and ligaments and, and joints. And, you know, they grew stronger until the point where it's just those hands in the armpit and, they can stand on your lap and, and eventually it's just, you know, one finger in each hand and you're holding the kids up and then eventually it's just that one hand holding them and then, whoa, the big exciting moment happens in the house where for five seconds and down they go. Okay, it's an epic event in the life of a child. <laughs> it's an epic event for their parents. Look at verse two again. And we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ to establish and to exhort you in the faith, to teach you to stand. Verse 3. That no one be moved by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we are destined for this. Now the Thessalonian church, though they were young in their faith, quickly faced opposition. Uh, they, they quickly were suffering for their faith. They, they were immediately in the midst of a society that was persecuting the early church. And, you know, just because they had Jesus in their life didn't mean that all their marriage problems were fixed. Just because they, they had Jesus did not mean everyone in their family got saved and came to faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, just because they had Jesus didn't mean work was easy or that they didn't face suffering and, and persecution. Listen, those Thessalonians, they got saved. They made peace with God. Uh, they, they, they settled the issue of eternity. They surrendered their lives to the rule of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they had their sins forgiven. And they had hope. They were given new joy. Uh, there, was a new com there was communion for the first time with their creator. But it did not mean life was all roses and lollipops and ice cream cones and rainbows and sugar plum fairies and all that stuff. You know that if you're following Jesus Christ. It doesn't mean everything's all perfect. You know, Christianity is, is not a, you know, a country song played backwards where you get your dog back and your truck back and your girlfriend back and your house back and a new pair of Wrangler jeans and all that stuff. You know, we can quickly reduce the gospel to issues of, of, of health and wealth. A prosperity teaching, name it and claim it, grab it and blab it, or blab it and grab it. Which is a gospel where greedy, covetous people can feed, them, feed their greed in the name of Christ. 
And there's many false teachers out there that proclaim that gospel. But as we've been seeing in Thessalonians, it's, it's a thing that's striking me about Thessalonians. That the gospel is not about ease. It never was. Jesus did not promise us ease. The gospel is not a journey down easy street. Following Jesus is not roses and lollipops and all that stuff. But it is this. It is the promise of God's presence with you in the midst of those things. The gospel is the promise of the presence of God in the midst of our suffering and our trials and our persecutions and our afflictions. His indwelling presence. The presence of the Holy Spirit. The gospel for us is this. We were unrighteous and God was righteous. We were sinful and God was holy. We were lawbreakers and God was just. But in his love, he sent his son Jesus Christ. He wrapped himself in human flesh. He lived the perfect life. He gave his life as a sacrifice for our sins on the cross so that we would not die and experience eternal separation from God in a terrible place called hell. He, he died so that we might be forgiven and be made the righteousness of God. He, he surrendered his life so that we would be righteous before a holy God, born again and receive the gift of a salvation, receive the gift of eternal life, and the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit who calls us to his side to walk with God. Is that the promise of ease? It's not. But it is the promise of God's presence in this life. The presence of God, I would say, it, it, it is life. It is life, the presence of God. The gospel is good news. You know, Paul's life actually gives us a pattern for that which he passed on to the churches. Think about his story, his salvation experience, his road to Damascus, where he was knocked from that, ho from that horse with a blinding light and a voice from heaven, and, and he was blinded and the Lord spoke to him and said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And he was told to go to the house of a man named Ananias. Now, Acts chapter 9 tells us about Ananias. He's a God-fearing man. But when he found out that Paul was coming to see him, Saul, he feared for his life. Because Saul was a murderer. He was a persecutor of the church. He had been a man who resisted God and Ananias was afraid to see Paul but the Lord gave him a message for Paul and said don't be afraid for I will show this man how much he must suffer for my name turn with me to Acts chapter 14 for a moment We'll pick it up in verse 21 of chapter 14. Paul is in the city of Derby, and it says, When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconia and to Antioch. Look at this word. Strengthening the souls of the disciples. And second word, encouraging them to continue in the faith. There they are again, strengthening, encouraging, always the ministry of Paul. And saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Wow, isn't that lovely? Let me, let, let me, let me 
bring you into a little secret. Ready? Don't tell anybody this. If word gets out about this, it's bad news for us, okay, for the church and the message of the gospel here. Actually, I think if the church would actually grasp this, we'd multiply. Here's the secret. There's tribulation when you come into the kingdom of God. The enemy is going to attack you. You might suffer. You may face persecution. There will be afflictions and there will be trials. But dear friends, listen to what Paul says in in Thessalonians at the the end of verse 3. He says, you were destined for this. You, You were actually destined for these things. And here's the good part. When these things come, it is faith in God that will keep your feet on the ground. Without faith in God, these things, sufferings, trials, and persecutions, and affliction, you know, they will defeat you. But with faith, with faith in God, you can stand. You know, in the face of cancer, in the face of a messy marriage, you know, for the salvation of your loved ones, in persecution, and suffering, and trials. You know, like the disciples traveling across the Galilean Sea, you can be in the boat and the wind can blow and the waves can roar. But when Jesus says you're going to the other side, you're going to the other side. You have eternal life. You will reach that shore. You will arrive on that shore. Fear not, little child. Fear not, O ye of little faith. Jesus may seem like he's asleep for the moment, but he can rise to his feet in a second and command the wind and the waves, be still. And they'll be still. There will be peace. Fear not. You can stand because the strong arms of your father are right there to catch you as he's teaching you to stand. Now, I know it feels like we're all alone sometimes, but he's there to catch us. And so it might be nine months, or 11 months, or 17 months, or or much longer, but God is going to teach you how to stand. And the trial that you are facing right now, let me ask you this, what trial? You just put it right to the front of your mind. What is the trial that you are dealing with in this life? Put it to the front and hear this. God has not sent that trial to break you. He sent it to teach you. God sent that that trial to train you and to reveal to you your own mindset and so that you'd get a, a, a picture of what's going on inside of your own heart. He's trying to train you and to teach you. I think of Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego in the greatest trial of their life, thrown into a fiery furnace. And there they discovered Jesus was present. And see, the more you, and they, they stood in the midst of that fiery furnace. And the more you learn to stand in the Lord, you must learn to set aside fear and take hold of faith and in God's ability to work in the midst of your situation. You know, I think many false teachers turn faith into something superstitious. Faith has substance. It's not a superstition. You know, we can say that faith has substance because faith has a foundation. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not yet seen. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 1. See, biblical faith is founded upon the promises of God, upon the word of God. Romans chapter 10 verse 17 tells us, faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And so when Timothy went to work amongst the Thessalonians to teach them how to stand, to how to stand in the Lord, how do we get there? How do we do that? How did he do that? Connect the dots. He proclaimed to them the word of God. 
He discipled them. He taught them. He trained them. And to stand by faith, you must make an increasing effort to stand on the promises of the word of God. Now, obviously, you can't do that if you never spend any time in the word of God. If Sunday is it for you, your ability to stand by faith is it's limited to your knowledge of the word of God. You need a working knowledge of the word of God and the promises of God. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 7. You guys with me? Matthew chapter 7. little parable that I love. It says this in verse 24. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on the house. But it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. What is the rock? In that passage, take a look at it for a minute. What is the rock? You can say it out loud. Sorry? Take another look. What is the rock? The word. Do you see that in there? The word is the rock. Jesus said, these words of mine, when you build your life on them. What is the difference between the man who built on the rock and the man who built on the sand? Did both, did both hear the word? They did. It says they both heard the word. But one man obediently responded to the word of God and did what Jesus' word says. The other man just listened and didn't do anything. If you are going to stand in the face of the storm, then you are going to need to be established and exhorted in the faith. And that means this. You need the word of God in your life. You know, is that nursery rhyme? How's it go? Husha, husha, we all fall down. Look, we all fall down, but our father is there to pick us up. He does not leave us or abandon us. We, get, we just get back up on you. You fall down, get back up on your feet. That's what a righteous man does. And a working knowledge of the Bible is essential for your spiritual growth as you learn to stand and to have stability in your faith in Jesus Christ. You know, that's one of the reasons why God has established his church. Why we're here this morning. So that we could learn, we could learn to stand, and then we could pass it on to others. Paul sent a man to Thessalonica, Timothy. And that man established them in the word and they learned to stand. Now verse 4 says, For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. Now isn't that true for all of us? You know, it's, it's just this. You know, there was suffering and there was affliction and there was trials before Jesus. And they happen in all of our lives after Jesus. The difference is this. Before they were meaningless. And now they have value and purpose. You know, just before, it drove me crazy with questions. Made us all nuts. But with Jesus, we can see the trials and sufferings and afflictions and persecutions uh, have, have a purpose. That doesn't mean that you have all the answers. It doesn't mean that you understand all the ins and the outs and the whys. But it does mean this. Instead of asking why, we can say, okay, God, 
You're doing something. What for? In faith, how can I walk with you in the midst of this? I know this has a purpose. I don't like it. I don't like this, Lord. David was really good at saying that in the Psalms. You know, God never said you had to like it. But he does want us to trust him. To cling to his promises. God, by faith, I don't like this. But I believe you work all things together for the good of those who love you and who are called according to your purpose. I trust you in the midst of this storm. So here I am, Lord. In the center of this whirlwind, in the face of this storm, I'm giving all of me to you. I'm teachable. Let's do this thing. Let's learn the lesson and move on. Make sense? Clearer than mud? Look at the point is this. Affliction should never surprise you. It shouldn't. That's why Paul was concerned about the Thessalonians. Because he knew that it was going to happen. And that's why Timothy was sent. And so he says, verse 5, For the reason when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. The tempter, old slewfoot, Satan, the devil. Scripture says he's a snake, a, a roaring lion. He's like an angel of light. He attacks, and his, his attacks are strategic, and they are varied. You know, he'll come and he'll tempt you and, you know, question the word of God like he did to Eve. You know, he will, he will tell you that or suggest to you that God is holding out on you like he did to Adam and Eve. You know, he'll try anything. You could just go through it. The, the scriptures and look at the varied attacks of Satan. You know, when you're suffering, he will come and he will try to exploit what you are going through. He did that even to Jesus. When Jesus was in the desert and fasting for 40 days on that wilderness fast, he came and he tried to exploit the Lord and twist the word of God to him. You know, he tried to exploit Job's suffering and said, curse God, man. I'll make this guy curse God. Satan will do that. He will work to exploit your suffering and he will encourage you to throw in the towel. You know, he'll exploit your church frustrations. He'll exploit your, your people frustrations. He'll exploit your failures with sin. He'll exploit your sufferings, your, all these things. And he'll want, he wants you to throw in the towel. Don't be duped. Do not be duped. And so Paul carried this, you know, this fatherly concern uh, for the Thessalonians that they would learn to stand in the midst of their faith rather than be paralyzed. A paralyzed faith. I was thinking about it. There's such a thing. You're crippled Christians. Crippled Christians. Been robbed of the promises of God. And nothing wrong with their legs, but their faith is paralyzed because Satan duped them. Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee. Rise in the name of Jesus. Look, dear Christian. Some of you are paralyzed by the lies of the evil one. And it's, you know, Jesus Christ is present and can heal you of your infirmities. By faith, stand up. By faith, stand up and cling to the promises of God and walk forward in the face of the storm. Amen? Well, when time was up, in Thessalonica, Timothy returned to Paul. Look at verse 6. 
Now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, I guess Paul had it going on too. In all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. Man, what was the report? Timothy comes back to Paul. He says, dude, the kids are standing, man. Ooh, it's a little wobbly. Knees, woo, they go, well, every once in a while that one goes down. And, but the kids are standing in faith. They're standing in the midst of their persecution and their suffering. What they're going through, Paul, you need to know. It's real. But they're standing in the midst of it. And what was Paul's response? He says this, I'm comforted. You know, I, he, he, he actually personally received back, you know, in a sense, what he sent out. He, he sent Timothy to exhort and to comfort them. And then when he got the good report, the fruit of that blessed him. And he himself was comforted. Look at what he says in verse 8. <clears throat> For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. You know, that news about Thessalonica and the church, that refreshed Paul. It brought life and vitality to his ministry. It renewed his hope in the work of the Lord and the work that he was doing in Athens. You know, the apostle John said in 3 John verse 4 that the greatest joy that he had in his own life was to know that his children were standing in the Lord. Uh, he was talking about the church. Knowing that his kids were standing in the Lord. That's the greatest joy that he could have in his life. And it was Paul's joy too. It comforted him. Verse 9. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you for all of the joy that we feel for your sake before our God as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Something exciting here. Paul's prayer life was ignited, man. It was, this was like stoking the flame, man, throwing wood on the fire, hearing Timothy's report. Uh, in fact, he, it drove him to the place of prayer, but not only that, it allowed him, as he heard the report of what was going on with the Thessalonians, um, he got real specific in his prayers for them. And he tells us a few things that he prayed for them. The first thing is this. Uh, Paul prayed continually that their faith would mature. That what was lacking in their lives, that it would be supplied. You know, his hope was that he could personally himself um, do that work, that he might go back to Thessalonica. And, you know, in, in a roundabout way, it took time, but God actually answered that prayer. He got to go back there on his third journey. He prayed that their faith would mature. Now, faith is it's like a muscle. Faith is, is a muscle that gets stronger when it gets put to use. And as we follow Jesus and we, we, we're, living, we're, we're constantly living in this tension of fear and faith. And sometimes we cave to fear. Other times we stand in faith. But faith has got to be exercised. It's got to be put to work. And a, a faith that cannot be tested is a faith that cannot be trusted. And so God tries our faith. He's not trying to destroy us. He's developing us. You know, think of Abraham. He's called the man of faith. That's what he's referred to in scriptures. He's the ultimate example of faith, Abraham. And he lived in, 
in the Chaldeans, in Ur of Chaldea, and he was called to the land of Canaan. And he arrived, and what did he discover when he got there? Genesis tells us that there was famine in the land. And in fear, Abraham failed the next faith test. He, he got out of Dodge. He went to Egypt. God wasn't leading that. He did that all on his own. You know, in each step of his journey, God led him to this place where his faith was tested. I'm going to lie about the identity of my wife or I'm going to tell the truth? Am I going to, you know, uh, trust the promises of God for our offspring or not? You know, am I going to conceive a child with my servant girl, Hagar? You know, am I going to listen to the command of the Lord when he tells me to sacrifice my son, Isaac? Look, Abraham, as you read his story in Genesis, went through testing of his faith and you watch him develop through the book of Genesis. You watch him develop the, exor the exercise of faith and, you know, um, I just think, I was thinking about it, Abraham, you know, he never could have walked in faith and cling to the promises. I mean, remember the story he's called to sacrifice Isaac? Like, I read that story and I'm like, it's just crazy. I don't, it's really one of those stories. It's like, why is that in the Bible, God? I mean, we know it's the picture of God, our Father, and uh, His Son Jesus. But it's like it's hard to wrap your mind around the fact that Abraham was actually obedient and that God actually gave him that instruction. But if Abraham had never gone through all the previous tests of faith, he never would have made it through that one. He had been through so many tests of his faith that he said this, God called me to sacrifice my son. That's fine. I'll do what he says because God can raise the dead. His faith had been exercised and he trusted his God. And so Paul prayed for the Thessalonians uh, that they may uh, have supply, that they may mature in what is lacking in their faith. Verse 11. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. Second thing he prayed, that your love may abound. You know, a growing faith, uh, one of the fruits of a growing faith is a growing love for other people. You know, you just think about when you're in the midst of trials and sufferings and these afflictions and different things. One of two things will happen. You know, in, in self-centered absorption, which is what the human heart does, we, we pity and we turn the thoughts to ourselves and, um, you know, we fire up the walls. We just start building the walls around self and we go into isolation and we slip into a vacuum of this self-centeredness. Or the other thing that you can do in the midst of those tests and trials is this. You can build walls and bridges to other people. Instead of isolating yourself, you can develop relationships in the midst of those things. You know, over the last few years in our church, we've had a number of cancer things go on. We have. And, it, and it's, been, it's been interesting as we've had those scares go on in our church because, you know, those that have gone through that, I've watched them become such a blessing to our church. I'm like, what the heck, God? That's cancer. 
Something's trying to take their life and kill them. And as they shared with the body and they brought us in on what was going on and they allowed us to pray for them, the body got to minister in love and, and to, like, I mean, you know, awful trial. Cancer is an awful, awful trial. I never want anyone to ever go through that. But what a blessing from God it has been to our church to allow us to demonstrate our love for someone and for them to share that burden. You get it? Amen, Brian. We're glad you're here, buddy. You're an answer to prayer. And so Paul prayed that their love would just grow, that they wouldn't live in isolation, but that they would share their burdens and their trials and that they would love one another in the midst of it. Last verse, he says this. So that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Paul's third request was that um, that the hearts of God's people would grow in holiness. You know, again, just like all these chapters, I'm going to keep pointing this out because it's kind of an interesting thing, but all the Thessalonian chapters end with a reference to the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And here in this chapter, the coming of Jesus Christ is linked to the holiness of his church. Because when we carry an expectant, hopeful attitude that is looking towards the coming of Christ, what naturally results is that we begin to walk in holiness. We want to be ready, man. When we know the master's coming, you know, when my wife goes away, I work really hard to clean the house when I know she's coming back. You get the picture. It's the same thing for us as believers. When we walk with an expectant attitude towards the coming of Christ, naturally, uh, it leads to the believer having a life of greater holiness. Christ is coming. And it's a great reason to live for him right now, today. And so all these things, Paul, is, is he just got this great report. Here they are. They're standing, Paul. He said, Man, awesome. I'm going to pray for them even more. That, that, that God would supply what is lacking in the faith. That they would grow in their love for one another. And that they would just grow in their heart for holiness before God. Look, you're going to have trials. Here's the secret that we talked about. Persecution, sufferings, all these things. The gospel, not as, the gospel is not a, you know, advance to go and collect $200. It's the promise of God's presence in the midst of all that we are going through. He has not abandoned you. He is with you. In faith, stand on the promises of God and know that he's going to walk you through this. And you'll be a greater man, a woman of faith, as you cling to the promises of God. Amen.